Hello, and welcome to Square in the Circle. On this episode, I'm joined by Colonel Gregory Tomlin, who is a current student at the Dwight D. Eisenhower School for National Security and Resource Strategy. During his previous assignment, he served as the Chief of Army Readiness on the Army Staff at the Pentagon. He is a career combat arms officer with numerous assignments in the Army, Joint, Multinational, and in Academics. Colonel Tomlin is a diplomatic historian and author of Miro's Cold War, Public Diplomacy for the Kennedy Administration, and co-author of The Gods of Diawa, a memoir of Operation Iraqi Freedom. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization as contents for education and information purposes only. All right, sir. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast and, and uh, you know, spend some time with me and having a discussion regarding some, you know, various different different areas to include understanding readiness, um, working at the Pentagon, um, you know, your experiences, um, talking talking to you about some contemporary issues um, and some challenges and, and getting your, your perspective. Um, you know, I'm really curious to get your thoughts and to not not to jump too far ahead, you know, for the listeners, but, you know, we're going to talk about a little bit about the information domain with, uh, you know, some historical background. Um, but before we dive in, sir, you know, I'll turn it over to you for any opening comments. Uh, Matt, just I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and your audience, uh, particularly those in the force management field. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. So understand you're in, in PME right now, sir. Um, prior to you were the, the chief of army readiness. Um, so I was just you know, curious, sir, you know, you know, what did you learn from your previous assignment? And, you know, you know, do you think it's like helped you develop, you know, develop you as like, you know, a good like broadening assignment development assignment for for future assignments, if that makes sense, sir? Absolutely. And I would encourage any of you junior field grade officers to not be intimidated about looking for an assignment on the Army staff. As a major, I had spent three years on the joint staff. I was doing targeting doctrine and policy, and that was very educational. It was very broadening because I'm looking at the competing commands of different combatant commands, uh, priorities from two different presidential administrations, and, and trying to understand that. But when you work on the Army staff, and under Title 10, the services are responsible for manning, equipping, training the force. Um, that is something that is very much appropriate for a force manager. And with inside of the G357, of course, we have the FM directorate. And when you sit back in the service and you understand the perspective of senior army leaders who are trying to modernize the force for the future, but at the same time react to all the chaos in the world today, and you still have to provide readiness to support those emerging year of execution requirements, you have a different perspective, a different appreciation than you had on the joint staff. And certainly, if you were like I was in the first seven years of my career, heavily tactical, involved in divisions, um, your perspective was not beyond where am I deploying to next or what's my next CTC rotation. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, not to not to put like words in your mouth, but I think like you know it's a, a fair assumption to say that you know you would, you would agree that you know we should strive for that assignment on you know at the Pentagon or on the Army staff or, or for the Joint. I'm um, just wondering, you know, just a little bit more thoughts, thoughts on that, sir. You know, w- like where should, uh, sh- should we go as like a junior major, senior major, or, you know, should we wait till we, you know, our lieutenant colonel, just, you know, your thoughts, sir. I think the first time that you'll have an opportunity to do something is if you are an intern and come in as a captain, uh, if you do the congressional fellowship and you go to George Washington for a year, if you do the OSD fellowship and you spend a year at Georgetown, you will spend two years in the building as an intern. And that is interesting. Um, but there are a variety of other jobs available for senior captains that I wouldn't 
necessarily encourage someone to jump at right away. Where I think you'd have a most meaningful impact is as a major coming out of your KD time. So if that's on division staff as an FM officer, if it's as an S3 and XO as an operations officer, when you go into the Pentagon as a major that is senior, um, they start to treat you like a lieutenant colonel. You start to get more responsibilities. I first came to the Pentagon as a major after being a battalion XO, and um, the potential they saw in me allowed me to be a branch chief right away, which is typically a job for a lieutenant colonel. And the second time I came to the Pentagon was out of battalion command. I was looking for somewhere where I could learn and make a difference. And so I went initially to the Pentagon into the G2 because they had an opening there. But then I had the opportunity to interview and, and work in the G3 in the, in the readiness division. And it was just eye opening. It wasn't something I initially planned for, but I had a desire to get in the building because I knew it would get me out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm an artillery officer. I can shoot cannons day or nighttime. I'm comfortable doing that. But having discussions with Army senior leaders on strategic or tactical readiness, I had to go back to the books. I had to read the regulations. I had to talk to subject matter experts across the Army before I could coherently make a position or an argument recommendation to a senior leader. Yeah, yes, sir. And that's a good segue because, you know, I want to get into you know, like your perspectives and your experiences, you know, in, in readiness. Um, on our sense, you know, force manager, first actual assignment within the G3 force management was in readiness. And my experiences prior to that was, you know, the tactical level as a readiness officer at the, you know, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, um, you know, just, the first week of the month, right? Just grinding away, doing those reports, you know? Um, and then as the company commander, you know, you know, uh, you know, driving those reports and, and, and updating those and briefing those to the battalion and brigade commanders. Um, but then getting up into arson and, and being involved in over, you know, 150 something, you know, reports and be involved in the, you know, the total army, uh, readiness review. Um, you know, it was very eye-opening. It got got different, um, you know, experiences and and uh, you know insights and perspectives and like you know strategic level, you know, readiness. So you know, I know, sir. There's you know, I had to get back into the books and and you know understand what you know strate- um, tactical and operational readiness. You know what that meant. You know, had to like re you know regreen type. You know, on that. Um. So, sir, you know, just just curious. You know, on 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 readiness. You know what. Wh- wh- What's like the true definition, like what's your definition of, of readiness? Because there's there's plenty of articles that are out there, like, you know, the war on the rocks and whatnot, where, you know, they they try to define define readiness. And, you know, it's it's turned into like an overused buzzword. So I was just wondering, like, what what your thoughts on there? Has it has it gone away, you know, to, from the true meaning, you know, if, if that makes sense? Or Readiness is the risk assessment of the Army. And you mentioned the Total Army Readiness Review. We hosted those for the Army every month. Uh, In fact, last Friday, I was in the Pentagon for promotion, and I snuck upstairs and I sat in the Total Army Readiness Review just to see, since I've been out of the building for six months going to school, what has changed, what's the priority with the current chief, who is involved in it. And I found it very similar to what I had seen before, both in presentation, but also what's important to senior leaders. So you mentioned being, as a lieutenant or captain, a readiness officer. And there are about 5,000 units across the Army. And tactical readiness means that on the 20th of every month, we pull the report from all 5,000 units. And you're going to tell us about your personnel, your equipment, the status of that equipment, and how trained you are as a core organization for what you're supposed to do, but then an assigned mission. 
So if I'm with the 3rd Infantry Division and I am going to have an assigned mission for CENTCOM and I'm going to work for you, then I'm going to maybe assess what I need to do in theater as something different than what my core mission would be at home as part of a division. And what I found just sitting in the Total Army Readiness Review last Friday is a brigade commander from a reserve brigade sitting at the table at the Pentagon, personally briefing the chief of staff of the Army on personnel challenges, equipment challenges, training challenges. And then the chief of staff of the Army turning to the director of the reserves and saying, let's talk about training opportunities because I know they're out there. Turning to the G6 of the Army and saying, can you really communicate without the system? How significant is it? And that was really powerful to see because they do care at the most senior levels of the Army, the readiness of company, battalion, and brigade level units. So what you choose to put into that system or what you choose to omit from that system will have an impact and draw the attention. Not every unit in the Army needs to be at the same level of readiness. At that Total Army Readiness Review, there was a focus on the reserves. And there'll be a cycle where they'll look at the National Guard. They will look at active component troops. And every active component troop, just like every component in the, or every every reserve or National Guard component, is not going to have a unit at the same level of readiness. It, it depends on what we need them to do. So there's a select number of units in the Army that are on the immediate response force. Within 72 hours, we need them somewhere in the world. And those units are scrutinized by Army senior leaders. Wait a minute, Forcecom, why did you put this unit on the list if you're telling me it can't be ready in 72 hours? Those are hard questions that have to be answered by three and four-star generals across the Army if they're not as ready as they need to be. But we care because we are accountable for that in the Department of the Army. But then there's contingency response forces. And it's the idea that you have plans, whether it's mass migration for Southcom, whether it is support for the Ukraine mission, whether it is a reaction to something in Korea for Indo-PACOM. There are forces that will be aligned with each of those plans, but we assume risk that we can't have them all to the same level of readiness as every brigade that is on the IRF, the headquarters of the 82nd Airborne Division, or if it's the 101st, whoever is the immediate response force headquarters that has to be out the door in 72 hours. It's just not realistic that every unit in the Army can be that ready, but that doesn't mean we're not ready for what we need to do. The conversations that occur in the Pentagon every month are, what's the right mix? What's the right balance? And a lot of the frustration that comes into it is, in year of execution, we have things that we didn't anticipate. So the Army structure is formed two years before we execute it. Mm -hmm. And so in 2000, they were writing the Army's structure and the requirements for 2022. In 2022, Russia invades Ukraine. Now there's a need in UCOM to have four brigades. So that's two additional brigades that weren't necessarily plussed up with personnel. We're not trained at a, at a CTC. We're not financed to deploy across the world, potentially from based on where they're located. And, and that causes friction. And that means that resources that the Army has planned for have to be taken and reallocated to support immediate demands of the combatant commands. Gotcha. Yes, sir. Do you, for our readiness reporting, do you think, you know, from your from your experiences, is it is it missing any key information to, you know, inform decisions? Is there is, is there anything that senior leaders are, are, are wanting that are just not in the assessments themselves or? At the tactical level, I would believe that they're getting all the material that they need. But where they get frustrated sometimes is when someone at a two or three star level is not scrutinized the information and the first person to scrutinize it is the G3 of the Army. 
And that's where it gets a little uncomfortable working in the Pentagon. And you start making the calls and working with their staffs to try to fix that before the total army readiness review. So ideally at the total army readiness review, we all have a shared understanding of what's going on. But sometimes we get so busy, we just leave it to the readiness officer and they're pushing reports up to the next echelon where you probably need to bring in the attention of your commander because they're gonna be talking to the force com commander and the trade op commander about your brigade issues. They're not talking to your division or core commander. Sir, so after the the tar um, is is readiness reported up to the to the joint level. Like how how is how does the joint staff receive like our our readiness reports or ratings? Yes, there's a couple of reports that we owe to the joint staff. Um, there is the joint readiness review, joint forces readiness review called the Jiffer. And that is a report that looks a little different though than just the tactical piece. If you were to look at Air Force or Navy tactical operational readiness metrics, they obviously look different than ours. Um, if you're deploying a ship, if you are deploying an aircraft squadron, that's different than saying, I'm going to take a brigade combat team or a sustainment brigade. And so what you see on side of the Jiffer looks a little bit different. And a lot of the conversation though has to do with services. Can you support what the combatant commands are asking for? And that's where if we were to move into strategic readiness, where the Army has a separate regulation on operational and strategic readiness, we have separate metrics that we use, uh, strategic readiness tenants that we call them. There's seven of them. And we ask the Army staff to say, look across the Army, look at those tactical reports and talk to us about manning, talk to us about sustainment, talk to us about capabilities to support those war plans. And you get a different assessment and that really informs what the joint force is going to hear. The other part of it though, is when we do the ASRA, the Army Strategic Readiness Assessment every three months, we ask the ASCCs and you're supporting the one for Central Command to send us your report. And what we're asking for is also your readiness deficiencies based on the war plans that you have. So in Central Command 15 years ago, that was our priority effort based on what was going in Iraq and in Syria, Afghanistan. If you needed it, you were going to get it. It was guaranteed. Today's environment is a bit more challenging. We're immediately responding to the complexities in Europe. And so UCOM is going to get more material than it would have otherwise. Indo-PACOM, we've pivoted to the Pacific. What does that really mean? How many resources can we afford to give them at this time? That's a question that strategically has to be discussed because USERPAC is going to come in with certain deficiencies and USERA is going to come in with deficiencies. And the Army staff has to say, where can we accept risk? But we have to go back to the chairman. We have to go back to the combatant commanders and explain why we as a service want to assume risk in one theater over another. And it's based on those resources. In force management, you know what an organization looks like. You know what the manning looks like and you know what equipment is available. And so if you're going to modernize the army and you're going to step, uh, take certain units offline and you're going to allow them to modernize for a period of time and then bring them back up, that comes at a cost operationally. And that's something that in the GIFR, that Joint Force Readiness Review, we have conversations explaining why you come, you may not get as many BCTs as you anticipated. Kind of a follow on question is that, you know, can can we be ready as an army to fight tonight and also modernize at the same time? So, and I mean, modernize as in, you know, not necessarily be fielding a, you know, a, a new widget, new capability, but it could be something like a, you know, a software update for, for your fleet. Um, 
there's you know certain capabilities there, there's high demand low inventory so it's 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 really really hard and then also you know the, the strategic environment the enemy gets a vote the threat gets gets a vote so what are what have you seen at, at your level and then also like in, in your schooling sir of you know the the balance between being ready to fight in any any theater but then also meet the modernization efforts that we that we set forth your thoughts sir one of the ways that the army is deliberately approaching modernization is with this idea called rearm regionally aligned readiness and modernization so this idea that you can take units offline is relatively new in the army um, it used to be our, our readiness levels were one two three or four one is the highest four was the lowest and you never wanted to be four because that meant you weren't doing something right and there was fear that you were going to be relieved and to alleviate that fear that you're going to be relieved if you're a modernizing unit and you're simply going to be C4, we created C5. We are setting you aside. We want you to spend the next six months, nine months, maybe it's six weeks modernizing. We want it to be deliberate. We want you to go through a training exercise where maybe you fail, but that's okay because that's part of your modernization effort. And then we're going to bring you back into the readiness force where you're going to be one to four. And I think that's an important step that we've taken. And getting that model, though, to line up perfectly with the deployments around the world becomes very complicated. Because again, two years ago, we planned and we financed through the POM, through the R-Struck, what we wanted it to do. And then the year of execution challenges impact that. Wait a minute. Two years ago, you told me I would be taking a knee and spend six months modernizing my artillery battalion. And now you're telling me I'm going to split myself between Poland and Lithuania. When do I get the modernization? Well, you don't. Okay, who do I now plug into that window? Uh, well, this guy just came back from a deployment. We're going to do that with him. But there's a challenge because that brigade that he's supporting is supposed to go to a CTC rotation. Is he going to go without his artillery battalion? These are the complications when the real world affects the planning that FM and DEMO TR, the training di directorate inside of the G3, the Army, anticipates and and you're constantly trying to work through that friction to continue to modernize as many units as you can but the biggest thing that i think is different from say five years ago is that units can understand it's okay to modernize it's okay to say i'm c5 and it's not the same as being c4 yeah yes sir um with the usr reporting readiness model you know, would you do anything differently? Is there anything that you would add, take away um, just from, from your experiences, sir? The model I believe we have about right. One thing that's transparent to most people in the Army, though, is over the past year, we transitioned from an Army-based system to a system that's for the entire Department of Defense. And the Air Force had already been building this system with OSD, and now the Army's fully in. And like I said, it's transparent to us, but what it allows OSD to do is now pull those metrics that before they would have to send an email or staff to the Army, hey, we'd like to know what these readiness levels are. And you create a memo and you get it signed by the approval authorities and you walk it down the hall in the Pentagon. With now this new system of DERS-S, this Digital Readiness Review System, S for strategic, it means that the Navy, the Air Force, the Army are all putting their data into the same one. So when that company readiness officer hits enter on the report on the 20th of the month, now people at OSD can pull it. Where we're challenged across the DOD right now is to make sense of all those metrics for reasons I already mentioned at the national level, because those readiness metrics for that brigade versus that Air Force squadron are going to be different. 
Um, and so now we've got to build systems to collect all that data and make it relevant if you're going to bring the joint force together and assess its readiness level and present that to the chairman or the secretary to make a decision. We, we're still actively working through that process to make it more coherent. Awesome, sir. So with the changes in the character war and also shifting, you know, the army, changing the army to, you know, MDO as, you know, as our, as our fighting doctrine, um, you know, we can't just be focused on specifically just the, the land, right? You have to factor in space, you have to factor in cyber, you know, even, you know, really, you know, electronic warfare information domain. So do you think, sir, just wondering your thoughts on, you know, should the assessments, um, should, should we capture, you know, space and, and aspects of cyber and, and electronic warfare and information in our readiness assessments? So, you know, you know, kind of put a, you know, example behind it. If, you know, at the company level, do they have the right, you know, do they have the adequate amount of, uh, you know, commo uh, NCOs, right? Or do they have all their software upgrades, right? Um, have they done any like training exercises where they're denied GPS? Like, should we be trying to capture that to ensure that, you know, the army is, you know, transitioning to the army of 2030 and we are actually ready to fight, you know, in MDO, if that makes sense, sir. It does make sense. And it is something that we are carefully looking at. A year and a half ago, when I first started serving as the chief of army readiness, one of the first major initiatives I had to look at was an idea from the uh, strategic directorate within the army G3 that said, we know that cyber vulnerabilities is a problem at the tactical level. We want to address it. And we said, well, how do you assess that in the USR report, your unit status report, if you're not first building the METs, which is the mission essential tasks? And so we have to make sure that we're going abroad, what we're going through the process appropriately and we don't rush through it, which is, hey, I just want you to add this as an additional tag in the USR. What does that mean, though? Right. We have to be thoughtful through our training doctrine. And so we stepped back for a minute with the DAMO SO initiative and we said, all right, how do we integrate into the METs, the cyber vulnerabilities? What specifically do you want to ask someone at the company or at the battalion level to do? And realistically, is that something they can handle right now? Are they resourced to do that? Mm -hmm. And if they're not, maybe we don't want to add it to the MET right now, because then by next month, everyone's going to be C4 because we've added this new MET on cyber vulnerabilities, but we haven't empowered them to do anything about it. So we don't want to just admire a problem. And so it took the 12 months that I was in the Pentagon in the readiness division to see that demo SO work through this train the trainer process down to the core and division level to say, this is what we want to integrate into the METs for cyber vulnerabilities. And then we can eventually flip that switch and add it into the USR. But we wanted to go across it in a way that made sense and then have a slower pace scale for doing that in the reserve and the National Guard because they don't meet every day and they've already got priorities to do. You can't just say, hey, we're going to spend our one weekend of the month focused on cyber readiness when they've got to do something as simple as a PT test or gunnery. I would add a couple other things that are tied to this that I saw in my time in the building uh, one of them was a challenge that Army Cyber had in that Army Cyber is recruiting soldiers for the 17 series. It's an MOS for cyber. They are training them to a standard that the Army believes is acceptable to work with any combatant command. But what we're finding is NSA and Cybercom have some joint requirements that are important as well. Okay, so we're going to send the 17 series soldier to work at Cybercom, but who's paying for that training? 
again, this goes back to two years ago, we decided how we're going to train soldiers, how we're going to finance that training, who are, who's going to serve as an instructor. And you're now you're adding this added requirement today saying, well, before you send that soldier to Cybercom, I need six more weeks of training. Okay, do we have anyone in the Army who's trained to do that? No. Okay, well, does the joint school have space for them to go to? Yes or no. Do we have money to send the soldiers TDY? Those are careful questions that you can't rush into. So yes, space and cyber vulnerabilities are important. We have to address them, but just adding it into the USR as a metric is not going to make us any more ready tomorrow. Yeah, yes, sir. Those are some really awesome points. You know, I also, I, I think it's, it, it's a good forcing function, I think at the, at the tactical level also to incorporate those, those domains into their, into their training and also for their own, you know, maintenance. It's like a forcing function to make sure that, Hey, uh, you know, my radios, my, um, my, my CPCE, CPOFs, you know, JCRs, you name it, whatever mission command system is out there, you know, has the right software upgrades, updates, um, all that. And then the signal, Hey, uh, I'm missing this signal um, personnel, right? Or, you know, thing, things of that aspect, you know, crucial for, you know, the Army of, of 2030 and MDO. So, sir, kind of shifting a little bit uh, on onto the, like the civilian side. Um, I was just wondering, sir, so like civilians, institutional knowledge, their experience, absolutely, you know, crucial, paramount for the Army. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Because, you know, I've, I've had discussions, you know, in the past and, uh, and, you know, I've, you know, I've read a little bit about, you know, maybe some sort of like readiness model that captures, you know, you know, our, our civilian structure, right. Cause they're on our TDAs, you know, um, it, you know, at least, you know, our, our GS employees, right. Not, not necessarily the contractors, but our GS employees, you know, are captured on, on, on TDAs and they're, you know, they're, they're paramount. And if we are missing key billets, you know, it, it impacts. So do you, long story short, sir, you know, it, do you think there should be a, you know, a model out there for, for our civilians to capture? I don't think we need a specific model to capture civilian readiness in the army. However, I do think we need to look carefully at how we're assessing it with inside of the strategic readiness tenants. There are seven strategic readiness tenants, and that's where as the army staff sits back and looks at readiness across the army, and we look at manning, we look at equipping, we look at training, we look at leading, we look at installations, there are dozens and dozens of indicators and levers under there. And in those metrics, we get into civilian education, um, having the right civilian workforce available at the time. And it bleeds over into the reserve component capacity, because when we think about units in the reserves and their readiness, we typically think about taking civilians to go for a month-long mission, maybe it's a year-long deployment somewhere, and then they're coming back. But if we were to look strategically at going to war with a pacing challenge that would consume the entire military, we are going to depend even more heavily on civilian capacity to step up in civilian hospitals if we take all, those, all the civilian reservists out and they're now working in our field hospitals. Do we have surge capacities at ports? Do we have surge capacities to manufacture 155 rounds? There are other places in those strategic tenants when you dig into them where you do get into those very specific points. And this year I'm a student at the Eisenhower School and we focus on national resourcing and global supply chains and surging industry capacity in the defense industrial base. 
and we're challenged right now because we did not anticipate that there would be a demand for all the artillery that we are providing to the Ukraine. And then for other special munitions, not just for the army, but the other service as well, that may be having to give them to Israel. It may potentially affect our war stocks and how much we were comfortable holding. Is that adequate now? How much more do we have to step up? And this is where that civilian readiness piece becomes far more complicated than a metric we can capture either in our strategic readiness tenants or in something like a USR. Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a really good points there, sir. Um, kind of shifting gear to like the recruiting crisis, um, you know, impacting impacting readiness. What are your thoughts on on the recruiting crisis not not meeting our our our, our goals for the last couple of years, sir? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts uh, on that? What, you know, what are the discussions you've been having in, in, in school? Um, how are, you know, what, what are some ways that we can try to help, help solve that? If, you know, if you have any, anything on this, sir. Currently the P rating, the personnel is the most significant metric affecting readiness of tactical units across the army. And we can train who we have, but if you don't have the individuals, and you can't just take a private and make him a section chief, a platoon sergeant right away. Uh, that is going to start impacting the training. And we're prioritizing the personnel to the units that we know will need to deploy, the units that need to participate in certain operations to ensure that they've got enough people to train. But at some point, if the recruitment challenge continues to persist, that readiness limitation on our current readiness will become more pronounced and where you're going to see it is in the readiness. It hasn't really affected the equipment yet, um, but that may be a potential as well. When you start losing people who are your maintenance personnel, your technical warrants, those who understand the systems, if, if we're not bringing sufficient recruits in to promote them to motor sergeant, to commission them as a, as a warrant officer, um, then we're going to see an effect there as well. But right now, over the past two years, we all acknowledge personnel is our biggest readiness challenge, but they are making efforts to put the people in the units that need them most urgently based on current combatant command requirements. Yes, sir. Um, shifting to another topic, you know, presidential drawdowns, um, the PDs, you know, we have PDs that go to Taiwan. We also have PDs that, you know, that have gone to Ukraine. Um, there's, you know, the political at atmospherics, you know, that say that, you know, these PDs are impacting readiness. I was just wondering, sir, what are your, what are your thoughts? Do you think that's true or, or, or not, sir? The most evident location for that is in the sustainment of our current fleet. So let's take a triple seven. I commanded a triple seven battalion at JBLM. We've given a bunch of extra triple sevens to the Ukrainians. They are actively using them. That means theirs are going to break down and they're going to need parts as well. I'm going to the field, I'm conducting gunnery, I'm going to a CTC rotation, my guns are going to break too. So we are both now putting an added demand on BAE, the company that makes them, to get us the components. And that's where the stress is occurring, is on key systems that we still employ in the Army, like a 777 unit, uh, but there are other units as well in the Army where their maintenance is impacted because they are waiting longer for a part that used to be on the on the shelf before. So the presidential drawdown, when we say, hey, let's give a 113 away, that's great. We're not really using 113s anyway. They're sitting uh -huh. in some depot somewhere. But when you give a Bradley or you give a tank, you don't just give the Bradley and the tank. It has to be 
fully mission capable, which means you can't just send a broken tank. You've got to send one that's got all the parts and it has to have a certain level of repair parts with it when it's when it goes. That's just taking shelf stock away from us. And if you're a maintenance officer, one of the things you forecast is I think next year I need this much in my budget for parts that are going to break and you're factoring in that some of it will come to you faster because it's in a depot somewhere else. Those depots may not have that right now and it's taking longer to get those parts out to the fleet. And that's where it will impact the readiness. Yes, sir. Um, you touched up on this in, in, in your opening, sir. I kind of want to circle back in, in terms of, you know, it starts with the strategy and then and then the resourcing, right? So with our, with our current strategy that we have, um, do you see like a gap between the resources and in, in our strategy, our, our actual shift, you know, towards the, the Pacific, right? You got China's the, the pacing threat, Russia's the, the acute threat, but the Middle East just keeps, you know, bringing us back in more, you know, devoting more resources. So what, what, what problems do you see, sir? What are your, what are your thoughts on, you know, what, what our civilian um, leadership has, you know, has, has directed, right. You know, in our, in our strategy in, in terms of, you know, what's happening real world. When I started working in the Pentagon two years ago, it was weeks before Kabul fell. And I saw this great shift in the surge to make sure that we could conduct the uh, exfil of many of the people they were trying to bring out of Afghanistan. Auto automatically CENTCOM is consuming resources again. And then several months later, I was there when Ukraine was invaded by Russia and resources start changing. What I'm most impressed with in the Army staff and across DOD is the ability to shift focus in those areas. Um, and make the best of it that we can. Strategically, though, where I'm a little concerned in the Army, and, and we're making adjustments to fix this, is how we accept new equipment that are coming through the Futures Command uh, production lines. And specifically, what I mean is sometimes we are so committed to producing on the schedule that we may produce something that we haven't updated our doctrine for yet. We haven't thought through who's training the technicians to maintain that equipment. We haven't thought about on the installation side, do the bridges at this location hold the weight of this new vehicle we're sending? Do the motor pools have an adequate overhead crane? These are very basic things. Um, and when we're focused on, my God, Russia's just invaded a European country. We've got chaos again in the Middle East and we have to address these issues and there's still a threat that's emerging in the Pacific. We have to focus on all of those things. But the institutional army, I think, has a responsibility, and FM is a big part of this, to say, okay, we know that in two years, this new piece of equipment will come out from Army Futures Command. Have we gone through the whole dot mil PF piece that must go along the lines with that? And that's where I think we've missed it a couple times, just because we're moving so deliberately, and we are so busy, and we're pulled in so many different directions, that someone coming into the Pentagon as an FM officer can see this and say, hey, you know, I know that it's not in my lane right away, but I'm concerned that we're not addressing CASCOM and we're not talking about how we're going to train the logisticians to train to to work on this piece of equipment. And some senior leader is going to say, you know what, I'm glad you brought that to my attention. We did overlook that. And all of a sudden you've got a staff action item that you can work on in a few weeks and you can claim credit for it because you're coordinating with CASCOM to make sure that Someone's updating that doctrine. Someone's getting the, the, the maintainers who are going to be out at the units, the right information so they can take care of that equipment. Because if you don't, 
you don't leave the motor pool, right? It's just like any other Humvee or other equipment. You've got to dispatch the vehicle. And if it's broken and we don't know how to fix it, how are we ever going to train on that new equipment? Yes, yes, sir. That's, that's good, good points. Um, sir, do you think that we're making the right assumptions about future war, what war is going to look like in, you know, in the future, you know, what we're seeing in the Ukraine, uh, what we're seeing in Israel. I mean, even, you know, like regional type uh, conflicts like Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, war is unpredictable. Are we making, you know, the right assumptions of what it's going to look like, or it's, you know, every war is different. I was just wondering what your thoughts are, sir. It's a very dynamic environment. Um, what we have to be cautious about is not being so enamored with a UAV capability, um, three-dimensional printing capabilities that we forget some of the fundamentals. We must really balance that. And the replicator initiative, for example, on rapidly producing certain equipment that is inexpensive and getting out to the force, that's important, right? There are challenges that we have with our acquisition system. The acquisition system is very deliberate. It's very cautious. It's very good with the products that we ultimately get. But it's about balancing how much we need for that potential fight that hopefully we never have to fight, but make sure we have that equipment so that it's not like 1941, where we're attacked by the Japanese and then we're waiting months and months and months to build up the carrier fleet to be able to go on the offensive. If we need to go on the offensive the day after we're attacked, we want that capability. But we need to balance that with the small capabilities that we need because insurgencies and small scale wars, as we know today, are still occurring around the world. And we have to be prepared to support that as well. Historically, I think we've become very comfortable at just kind of swinging one way or the other. We're never going to fight counterinsurgency again. We're never going to fight large scale combat operations. I've heard both from senior leaders over the 23 years I've been in uniform. And it was a view of history at the time that didn't turn out to be accurate. And so I think we've just got to be ready for everything, but I don't say that in a tongue in cheek matter. I think that we have to weigh that risk. So how much readiness does the army need for the future is dependent on all of those things that you've raised. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, that's great point, sir. Um, you know, this morning I had a conversation, um, on the, on the defense industrial base and we brought up the, the replicator initiative. Um, I, I think it's a good thing, right? Cause we're investing in, in mass and, in, in scale capacity. Um, one of the things that worries me about our modernization efforts is that, you know, we got all these nice capabilities that we're trying to, trying to get, a get online, right. And get fielded. Um, but some of our, are a few years down the road, right. And the enemy and the threat, strategic environment has has a vote and if you don't have that magazine depth i mean because we see in the ukraine you only have so many bradleys you only have so many patriots and if you don't have that capability that magazine depth that that capacity depth then you, we're, we're going to have some real big challenges so you know two you know two thumbs up for the for the replicator initiative i i think it's good you know there's a lot of uh you know pessimism out there about it there's some concerns about it with you know drone technology but i think i think it's good um so i was just wondering you know with your your pme um you know any other thoughts on the defense industrial base like any discussions that you know you've had with your peers with with some of the you know your the academics there you know um some of the you know guest speakers anything like that you, you wouldn't mind sharing sir the first half of our course last uh, fall semester, we had a variety of CEOs come and talk to us from major corporations. And 
it was helpful to hear from them how they remind us we have to make a profit. At the end of the day, we work for shareholders. And if we're not making a profit, we're going to fold up. After the Cold War, though, we brought our defense industrial base down to the big five. There are five companies plus BAE. You can call it the big six are responsible for all of it. Yeah. And so we know that they have to stay afloat. We know that we depend on them. But we have to make that balance where we ask them to commit an immense amount of capital to the R&D for a new future capability. And they do that. And then we have a change of administration or even within the same administration, a change of heart. And we say, never mind, we're not going to use that. But we just spent billions of dollars on this R&D. And we have to have a reality that, you know, you asked about civilian readiness. The defense industrial base is in the civilian sector, but that's integral to our ability to be ready. And so we can't just assume that they're always going to be available. We can't assume that they can always manufacture quickly. And they're working together to do things like uh, the Javelin. Um, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon are working together to surge capacity to manufacture the Javelins that the Ukraine is asking for. But on a more basic level, something that has frustrated me throughout my career, and most of uh, us in uniform have seen the same thing, is you go into a tactical operations center and the intelligence officer has a computer that doesn't talk to the artillery computer, that doesn't talk to the air defense computer, because we have the defense contractors working on different systems. Yeah. Why can't one computer do all of that? Why do the different systems I had in my striker vehicle as a battalion commander not do everything that my smartphone can do? Now, I know it's encrypted, but it's slow and it's sluggish, and I have to talk to three different contractors to troubleshoot that. What I would love to see is more openness inside of industry to share the intellectual property that's part of the software, right? I want to go to GM if you're going to build me a new truck, but if you've got a navigation system in there, I want to be able to put in my own so that I can quickly talk to the military satellites. I can encrypt emails and I can send updates like we used to do on Blue Force Tracker. Uh, JBCP, all those different systems that we have had over the years that we continue to upgrade. And that's where there's slowly, we believe, a, a shift that's occurring. When I was reading the Lockheed Martin annual report, they talked about open network architecture. And by that, I mean, Lockheed Martin builds us a system, but the Department of the Air Force, Department of the Army says, I want to put someone else's software in that system, maybe even the hardware for fire control, for navigation, for command and control. That is a direction that if we can move and the companies are comfortable with that and confident that they can still build a profit, we're going to be able to address the cyber concerns that you brought up earlier. We're going to be able to adapt and modernize based on what we see occurring around the world from potential threats that right now is much more difficult to do when you're doing five years out the plan for the requirement and that procurement process. Yeah, yes, sir. You brought up some other great points um, tied into, you know, here, cyber and, and software, um, with, you know, we're, we're, we're developing, you know, you know, programmer software, you know, engineers, right. in in the army, how do we, how do we use them in, in the field, you know, for like debugging actions for updates to, to software, if, you know, companies don't allow us to, you know, have access to, to that software, we're completely we're completely reliant on, on, on those companies. You know, we made strategic decisions back, back in the, you know, the nineties, you know, under, you know, informed risk because of, you know, the peace dividend, you know, the end of history, right. You know, you mentioned the, the big five, not, you know, the, the, the six, sir. And, you know, I, there's, 
you know, countless challenges, you know, that, that we're, that we're facing because of, because of those decisions as we're trying to shift from a coin centric to, you know, large scale combat operations. And the, you know, discussion I had, you know, this morning, you know, we brought, we brought up the, the Stinger missile where we haven't produced that since I think like 2003, 2004, five ish, you know, um, those civilian personnel, they've, you know, had that expertise, that knowledge, you know, to, to build that capability. But then, you know, if you shut it down since, since then, it's hard to ramp that back up. You know, General Ferrari says, you know, once you shut down a production line, it's like near impossible to get it back up again. You know, it's, you lose those people. It's, it's, it's very, very, very hard and challenging. And I think, you know, because of those decisions we made, you know, we're just, yeah, we're, we're, we're suffering through, um, and sometimes that's what causes the price to be inflated. We kind of gasp at the cost of an aircraft carrier or a submarine. But how many submarines, how many aircraft carriers do we build a year? This isn't 1943 where we're making multiple ones every six months. So you have to assume that certain part of the cost for your new aircraft carrier is just keeping that ship field uh, or that, that, that shipping yard open and warm with, like you said, the people that have the subject matter expertise to be able to do the welding, to do the electronics and all those things, because they're not going to come back. If you say, hey, I want to build another aircraft carrier. Well, how long do you need me? About eight months. No, forget that. I yeah. can get a job somewhere else that's secure, that's stable, and I want to you know, be able to support my family. So I'm not going to fault anyone in the civilian side for saying profits matter because it is feeding families. Yeah. And that's like, you know, some of the criticism that from our, you know, elected and some of our appointed officials, you know, getting back to like the, the ship ship uh, making, I think we're producing like two submarines a, a year. And we used to have, you know, 12 um, shipyards. And I think we're now we're down to just just a just a handful now. Um, and now we're shifting towards the Pacific. And, you know, the former chairman said that, you know, the, the fight fight against China um, is going to primarily be a, a space Navy air air fight. And the army is going to be in a supporting, supporting role, uh, which, you know, can be a hard pill to swallow for, um, you know, you know, the army and the, you know, the land domain, but, um, so, all right, sir. So, you know, shift into another, you know, very fascinating topic. Talk about the, the information domain. So over the, over the holidays, sir, you're, you're a historian, you're, you're an author, uh, absolutely remarkable book um, that I read over the holidays, and I'm definitely going to put the uh, put it in the uh, the notes notes page when I publish this uh, this podcast. And I highly recommend to the listeners to to read um, to get an idea, you know, of understanding the information domain with some historical background, his, historical context. Um, and so Edward Murrow, and I hope I I didn't mispronounce his, his last name. You know, the the director of the United States uh, Information Agency, um, Murrow's Cold War Public Diplomacy for the for the Kennedy administration. And so his primary job, right, you know, is to counter communist propaganda. Um, you know, and during the Cold War, you know, the United States, we you know we we have our our faults, right, and the Soviet Union is trying to capitalize on that it's like the battle of the narratives and we're trying to do the exact same thing in order to um you know improve international support and there's a really uh hot quote in here sir that you know my, my favorite chapter out of the whole book was was chapter nine on, on counterinsurgency propaganda and i and i went through it a couple of times 
but I just wanted to read this verbatim because I think it's 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 really good on, on page 231 is, you know, one of the primary themes in the USIA programming directed towards Southeast Asia focused on countering communist propaganda about Western imperialism. You know, agency analysts speculated that communists concentrated on colonialism for three reasons. First, anti-colonial fervor made it easier to present the West in a negative light, making it an attention grabber. Second, communist doctrine argued that the imperial powers would collapse with the absence of raw materials and markets from its colonies, and the Soviets hoped to weaken the West's economic strength. Finally, communists blamed the national bourgeois for the economic challenges suffered by the impoverished masses in the developing world. This message effectively drew the peasantry and the urban poor away from supporting the very governments that the West sought to bolster. The USIA countered the claims of the American imperialism by reminding its audience that while the 650 million former colonists uh, had gained their independence since World War II, the Soviets and the Chinese had subjugated over 700 million. So just, uh, you know, really, really fascinating, sir. So, you know, my question, um, sir, is, you know, time's like a flat circle. Um, you know, how, how, where do you see, like, uh, you know, the information ops, you know, the, the, the importance of controlling the narrative, especially with, you know, social media, you know, now. It is a big challenge. Um, the, the book that, that you mentioned, I appreciate you reading that, um, talks about the U.S. Information Agency. So from 1953 to 1999, we had an agency within Washington, D.C., responsible for coordinating the strategic communications, the public diplomacy of the United States. And it wasn't just the messages coming from the State Department or Department of Defense, but we were actively participating in libraries around the world where you could come in and learn English and read Time Magazine or the Wall Street Journal and learn about life in America. And, you know, one of the funny quotes in that book is when Ed Murrow discovers that in in Cairo, the most popular place to be is the U.S. Information Agency Library, the Russian embassy down the street starts offering lessons in English just to get people in the door. Mm. And, and, and that was something that we had, but we went into the information age and we closed the information agency. And it's only become harder and harder to have credibility around the world, to have a narrative that people trust. Social media with the amount of different mediums that you have to compete on, it's very, very difficult. And almost like the replicator system, it's something that's gonna change weekly, monthly, possibly daily, how do you adapt to that? And I think we are challenged about how to do that effectively right now as the United States government. Um, We have components of it that still do international broadcasting. We do have a global engagement center at the State Department, but within the Army, we don't have an information warfighting function. Mm. It is a domain at the joint force, but I think we're not helping ourselves by not making it a warfighting function. And the reason I say that is, let's go back to my dot mil PF concern about what comes out of the assembly lines from Futures Command. If you give a unit that new vehicle, but you haven't trained an operator how to use it, you haven't written the doctrine on how to integrate it, you haven't written the training manual for the technician or trained that technician to to make it work, it's not going to leave the motor pool. You're not any more ready than before. And if we don't have a warfighting function for information, and we're not deliberately thinking about who is accountable for this, how are we training them? At what echelon, right? Do we want a company to talk about their cyber readiness? Okay. Do we want the company or battalion to talk about their information readiness? During counterinsurgency, during the peacekeeping that I was involved in as a second lieutenant in Kosovo 20 years ago, that was something that we invested time in. And we started moving in the direction where it was almost going to be a warfighting function. And then we came back from it. 
and a lot of the resources went into cybercom because rightly so there's a lot to do in the cyber realm but the messaging the credibility we're missing an opportunity where we're not training tactical units to go on these deployments around the world and effectively communicate with the locals and the host population and we sort of assume that's happening or we assume that well they can go online and they can read it from the dod websites that may happen but probably not happening as as widely as we would hope yeah yes sir um you know it, it's becoming more challenging right with you know technology everyone is now a sensor um anything that happens you can just quickly take a photo of whatever action and upload it and it just spreads like wildfire juxtaposed back in like you know the the 50s the 60s the 70s you know that technology wasn't wasn't mature things took time to to get to get to people um i sincerely apologize sir i should have started off with you know just you know my, my intellectual curiosity is just, you know, what what got you interested in, in this area? What got you to, you know, writing about this and, and researching, sir? Well, you asked about broadening assignments earlier. And the first broadening assignment I had was as a captain coming out of Battery Command in Korea. I was invited to go teach at the History Department at West Point. And in graduate school, I pursued the PhD and my dissertation was on public diplomacy. It's what this book is about. Um, but the reason I was intrigued about that is eight years earlier, I was in Kosovo doing information operations, and I was really impressed with the quality of the operations. We were integrated with PSYOPs, civil affairs, the UN committee there, non-governmental organizations. We were synchronized and effective in our messaging. The following year, I was a rifle platoon leader in Iraq, and the administration at the time said, we're not here for nation building. We took a decade of peacekeeping experience and we flushed it. And it took a couple of years of very messy fights to realize that counterinsurgency, establishing security, building credibility is absolutely critical to what we're trying to achieve here in Iraq. And that was what motivated me to look at information operations. But if I had to do it as a historian, I had to find a period of time where people hadn't really written about it yet, but the material was accessible. And it coincided with the 50th anniversary of, of, of uh, President Kennedy's death. And so there was a push to make things open and available. And so it just became the area where I was able to be very fortunate in finding the resources to do the analysis and write that book. Awesome, sir. Well, it's a it's a it's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. And again, to the to the listeners, I highly recommend, uh, you know, they, they, they get a copy and, and, and read it and you know, get a good understanding of, of the information domain of, you know, during the, during the cold war. Um, that being said, sir, you know, I want to transition to the, to the fun questions, right. You know, that I ask, uh, all my guests, irregardless of, uh, of the, of the topic. Right. Um, so, and I, we just got done talking about a book. <laughs> so just curious, sir, what is your, your favorite book or, you know, a book recommendation, sir? Uh, novels are great. Uh, when I was in graduate school, my dissertation advisor said, make sure every fourth book you read is a novel. Otherwise, you'll forget how to write mm. um, because we can write some really boring stuff as historians. The two books that I've always enjoyed the most are from a guy named Herman Wark, American author, and he wrote The Winds of War and War and Remembrance. And it's a thousand pages when you put the two books together, sweeps across World War II through the lens of a Navy family. Um, but all the key actors in the world who are involved in World War II are also appearing in this book. 
uh, these two books. It was a miniseries in the 1980s. It was the most expensive miniseries ever made at the time, uh, but the books are better. And I would encourage anyone that likes World War II to pick those two up. Awesome, sir. Appreciate that. Um, kind of moving towards futurism a little bit. Um, you know, what emerging or future capability keeps you up at night, you know, worries you the most, sir? Artificial intelligence may sound like, oh, everyone's saying that that's a buzzword. Um, but the reason I am concerned about it is things I've learned this past semester at the Eisenhower School about what the Chinese are doing with it. And when we talk in the Army about what is our backbone, we talk about the non-commissioned officer corps. And you can have all these great vehicles, you can have cyber resiliency, but if you don't have NCOs caring for training soldiers, you're not going to be very effective. It's been our edge. The Chinese People's Liberation Army has made a deliberate effort not to invest in their NCO Corps, but instead depend on artificial intelligence to make decisions for officers. And in the future, that can be very, very dangerous if we were ever to have a war with them, because we would be having a war against the machine that is making decisions and determining outcomes where if you have a human being, you can make a different judgment call. And in the Cold War, there were instances where uh, both on the American and the Soviet side, people thought that the opponent had launched a nuclear missile strike. And there was a colonel sitting or a general in some silo who hesitated before he pressed the button or contacted his premier and said, I think we need to retaliate the missiles coming in. And it was the human that prevented a catastrophe in the Cold War. And I would make, I would hope in the future that we don't depend too much on AI, but I am worried about how the Chinese are choosing to use it for their military. Oh, that's, that's, that's fascinating, sir. Um, you know, last question uh, before we, you know, really conclude. Um, any advice, words of wisdom, you know, to force managers, to, to staff officers, anything you'd like to share, sir? Wherever you're working from the tactical unit up to strategic in a, in a command like yours or in the Pentagon, um, understand our doctrine, understand our regulations so that when you see that there's a problem, you're not just complaining about it but always bring a recommended solution to a senior leader. Uh, they will value you more. They will turn back to you if they know that you understand your doctrine, if you understand the regulations, if you understand the policies on why we build the POM two years earlier, the R-Struck two years earlier. If you can speak to that and not just say, everything's screwed up here, sir, and you know it's screwed up, um, that is not helpful. Uh, be a good staff officer at any level by knowing our regulations and then coming with a solution that is framed by what's in those regulations. Great. Awesome, sir. You know, we've covered a lot in this episode. We've talked about, you know, readiness. We've talked about, uh, you know, working in the Pentagon, your experiences, sir. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the defense industrial base um, and we've, you know, we, we've touched up on the, uh, in the information domain. Um, any, any final comments, sir? I'll give you the last word. No, I appreciate you doing this. Um, you know, we talk about information and getting it out there. This podcast is one means to do that. And you're using social media as a way um, to make this available to more people that otherwise wouldn't have that access. So I applaud what you're doing, Matt. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Hey, again, you know, I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thanks again, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes of the following discussion with the Senior Force Manager, and Public Matter Expert on Force Management, Defense Industrial Base, and the All-Volunteer Force.